Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you read with me again in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, the 13th verse. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation, as we've been working through this book of First Peter, I trust that you're coming to see that this is a book that is designed to fortify and strengthen the resolve of Christians to live faithfully under pressure. That's something we circle back to again and again in this series. You see that these are those who have their faith tried by fire, whom the apostle is writing to, those Christians scattered about Asia Minor, living in an oppressive and hostile environment, dealing with tests to their faith on a daily and an hourly basis. And here we see that in... uh, Verse 12, which we considered recently, together with the surrounding context, the the apostle is not merely trying to stir up their affections and emotions. That is one way that sometimes you can encourage someone. You can try to appeal directly to the emotions. You can try to say, well, things aren't so bad, or, or things could be worse, or some, some sort of saying that is just designed to change how people feel. No, he's appealing to their minds. He's appealing to their minds. It's, it's through the mind that the scriptures address us, And as a faithful preacher, the apostle here is speaking the words of God in this way. He's been reminding them that the truths of the gospel, which he is recording and reviewing for them, are those things which are not only preached unto them by the apostles and the other ministers of the gospel, but they were inquired into from old times by the prophets who first revealed them. And likewise, even the angels of heaven, he says, these also inquire into the things of the Lord in the gospel. They search after these things. And so the question comes in verse 12, what are we to do with this fact that the prophets of old, that the apostles of the present and the uh, angels of heaven all look into the truths of the gospel, well, they must also have an effect upon us. In the first place, in our minds, but through the minds, transforming the entire life. Wherefore, he says, or therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think it's profitable to be reminded that the Lord God cares about what goes on in our minds. 
not merely our brains, which are the part of our physical body, which uh, we think with, but also the soul, the immaterial uh, properties of the, of the person that are exercised in thinking, in thinking. Indeed, when we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, as well as this verse, we see really that there is a battle for the mind. There is a war being waged for the thoughts that are going on every hour of every day in the, in the minds of the people of God. Thus, the Apostle Paul echoes a similar sentiment in Romans 12 and verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that is very uh, consistent with Peter's message here. We're going to see as we transition to the latter portion of this chapter that it is conformity unto the will of God, true obedience and submission unto the Lord that is going to be in view. But that begins here with this, with the mind, with the battle that the Lord is waging in order to secure the thoughts of his people in conformity unto the truths of the gospel. I'd like to consider verse 13 under this theme, the battle for your mind, the battle for your mind. And with the Lord's help, we're actually going to consider that theme both in the morning and the afternoon. What I wish to unfold just this morning are two thoughts. First, the danger, and second, the exhortation. First, the danger, and second, the exhortation. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end. Why is it that these things would need to be said? Why is it that the Lord would address our minds, our thinking, in this sharp-pointed way. Well, I think there's a number of reasons why we must attend to the teaching of Scripture in this matter, that our minds be in submission to the gospel. In the first place, we ought to understand that the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake. The glory of Jesus Christ You see, Christian, you do not think the way that the world thinks. The world of unbelievers who are in the darkness of sin, their thoughts, as the scripture says, are only evil continually. They have no true knowledge of the Lord. They have no one single thought that even approaches unto the glory and majesty of of the true God, for their hearts and minds are darkened by the effects of sin and the enslavement of it. But it's far different with the Christian. These are exhortations given to the child of God, one who, as the apostle says, has been born again unto a lively hope, intervened, Uh, His life has been intervened into by the mighty spirit of God, such that the very thoughts are changed and influenced. 
If you look at the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 21, that apostle spoke in this way, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. This great work of the mediator reconciling a sinner unto the living God through Jesus Christ. This, this is the work that affects the mind. Yes, there is a sin of the unbeliever in not thinking of the Lord. But what of you, Christian? For you, you sin not only against the glory of the God who made you, but against the Christ who has redeemed you in love. The law which is revealed uh, on the lips of the Savior, where he says in Matthew 22, verse 37, And Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with what? All thy mind. Does Jesus Christ thunder at you? Does he, he come to you this morning telling you that you must do something or other to deserve his love? No, he has loved you with an everlasting love. He has drawn you unto himself, Christian. And this Jesus speaks unto you, dear one, and says, this is what I require of you. I require of your mind. I require that your thoughts Yield unto me is the Savior revealed in the gospel. And I know, Christian, that you cannot lightly hear that and not be grieved when you regard your thoughts. Because you love Christ, because Christ has so spoken unto you in his word and said that your mind belongs to him as you go about your day, as you see this thought or that thought wandering about in ways that you know are not good and profitable and glorifying unto him, it fills you with sorrow. It fills you with grief, not merely because as the Son of God, he is deserving of your devotion in this, but because he is your Savior, because he is your friend. And you delight in him. Why do you exist, Christian? Why is it that the Lord has seen fit to place you upon this earth, in this church, in this community, in your family? It is that you may fetch a bit of glory for himself. The Lord would have you glorify him. What more could we say? Could we just close the Bible at this point, and said, it's all that must be said. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed you by his precious blood, he desires your mind. And he would have you glorify him with your thoughts. And if we don't heed to this instruction, congregation, and what we are saying is that we are intent on denying the Lord Christ of his glory, that we have no love for him, God forbid that anyone would say this. May it be that everyone here would see that this is the danger, that we would not glorify Christ as he deserves. But there's another danger which I present to you today from the text which we are considering concerning our minds and the war for our minds. It, 
would be this, that the devil desires to destroy the church of Christ. You see, this is a war. It's a true warfare. Yes, Christ, our great general, the Lord of hosts, he has commanded us that these are the terms of battle. It it engages our thoughts. But also this, there is one who would desire to destroy the church, and that is a battle that concerns even the thoughts of the Lord's people. You remember, of course, that this same epistle in the last uh, chapter, which I believe Pastor Bergsma preached on very well uh, about one year ago, says First Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. There is the devil. He is a roaring lion. I don't imagine that if there was a lion loose in this building, that you could ignore that, that you could forget it. If you knew that there had been people who had even sat in the pew that you're sitting in, who had been eaten alive by a lion who lunges at the slightest provocation, I think you would come to church with a certain measure of care, not wanting to fall prey unto such a danger. Well, let me tell you something. There is a lion that devours people. It is to be feared that he has devoured even people who have sat in the pews that you've sat in unto their eternal destruction. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. He desires to destroy the church and all the members of it. These are the terms of battle. He says, be vigilant, not careless, not forgetting the threat, but no, being very vigilant. It's on the level of your thoughts that the devil would ensnare you And the thoughts that we think sometimes are innocent, well, that's just a fleeting thought, or that's just a passing thought, or yes, that is displeasing to the Lord, but surely if I rest there for a moment, it won't really matter. And then bit by bit and little by little, we are ensnared by him who would destroy and devour and lead us away from the living God. Do not forget this congregation. There is an enemy. That enemy also would seek to destroy the church through false teaching. False teaching. I trust that you've read your New Testament and not a small part of it, but rather a large part of it consists of warning against false teachers. The Lord Jesus Spoken this way in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. So you see, congregation, one of the ways the devil would destroy the church is through false teachers. People who come in unawares and they seek to corrupt the gospel the message of the word of God in one way or another in order to destroy the faith of the Lord's people and ultimately the church of Christ itself. 
And you see this as well. The false teacher or the false prophet doesn't show up and say, I am a false teacher. Watch out. He doesn't say, what I'm about to say is false teaching. So you need to turn off your, your minds and not listen to what I'm about to say. No. The appearance of the false teacher is not something that is threatening. They come to you in sheep's clothing. As one of you, as, one, as, a, as a fellow believer, as a Christian, the exterior looks all right. The message sounds appealing. But what on the inside? Well, on the inside, ravening wolf. There's a hunger and a lust for falsehood, for impiety, for blasphemy, for the destruction of the Lord's people. And it's not only there, but you could find many other places where this is warned about. Now, let me ask you this. If the Lord Christ instructs us to beware of false prophets, can we do that without engaging our mind? I do not believe so. You know, you never, ever ought to take what I say simply because I say it. It doesn't matter who it is. It may be be your pastor. It may be me. And if I tell you something, you ought to ask this question of everything that is said from this pulpit or in any other setting. What does the word of God say about that? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not, not according to this word, There is no light in them, Isaiah told us. And so it is so even today. There's a responsibility, not only upon the elders and consistory of the church, to watch out that the pulpit is guarded against false teaching, but as well for each one of you. Each one of you. You heard in the book of Acts that the Bereans were were commended by the Lord because they searched the scriptures to see that these things were so. And so it is that this involves thinking, it involves thoughts, it involves being on your guard. You look around at the, uh, the landscape of Christianity in Canada, and you look at the many buildings that are uh, advertising through the flags that they wave and the signs Outside, or the things that are spoken from the pulpit without shame. And it's very clear that churches that were once begun by Christian people and God-fearing people are now become synagogues of Satan. And it wasn't as though one day a Christian church decided we would surrender the gospel of God and the truth of the word of God and the holiness of the law of God and we will surrender it all for a a bit of porridge that the world would present us. It wasn't that way at all. It happened gradually. It happened bit by bit, slowly but surely. The incremental loss of truth and the incremental loss of devotion until churches that once were strong were lost unto the enemy. In congregation, this is something that we ought to take care to. We ought to take care to the thoughts of the Lord's people as it concerns the doctrines of the scriptures. We ought to buy truth and never sell it. We ought to never surrender even a single inch of that deposit of faith which has been entrusted unto us. 
This, the future of the church depends upon this, and the danger is great. The stakes are high. But I know this as well, congregation, um, the effectiveness of the church, the effectiveness of the church. You see, it's not only that we don't want to be destroyed or, or vanquished. Indeed, we know that the promise of Christ is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It's not, in the, in the first instance, a promise that the gates of hell won't destroy us, but that they will yield to us. The calling of the church is not merely to persist and to exist. It is to conquer in the name of Christ the desire that we should have for our church. Place as it is in this city with so many lost souls, it's not merely that we would persist and continue to exist, but rather that we would be the sharp point of the spear. That we would be effective for the kingdom of God and for his mission in the earth to disciple the nations and to bring them unto the kingdom of light and love and liberty in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 to 15, that we henceforth be no more children Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Yes, not just being gullible children, gullible babies who are brought into every kind of falsehood. No to mature as a church, to mature as individual believers, and collectively that we would grow up unto Christ, unto the mind of Christ, thinking Christ's thoughts after him, submitting unto him in all things, not least in our mind, in order that we would be conformed unto the image of Christ, in order that people would look at us and say, there is a man, there is a woman, there is a boy, there is a girl, and I see the love of Christ in them. I see the priorities of Christ in them. I see the resolve of Christ in them. I see the boldness of Christ in them. I see the tears of Christ that they weep for the lost. I see the burdens that they carry for one another. I see how they give and give and wash the feet of their brothers and sisters. I see how they turn the cheek and turn the other upon every slap and indignity. I see that there are Christians here, little images of Christ redeemed by his blood, showing that unmistakable likeness of the one who came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I tell you, congregation, if we would lose sight of Christ, if we would lose the mind of Christ, then the church is going to lose her way. The church is not on a pleasure cruise. It's not the sort of thing where you want to feel comfortable and ease. No, the church is a battleship. We are storming the enemies of hell and the devil and we are seeking to bring glory unto the name of our King and Savior. And we cannot be effective, congregation, if we neglect this truth and this discipline, that our minds be in subjection, that we 
heed the advice, not advice, but command given here. This final danger, I would say, congregation, not only that we would deny Christ his honor and glory, not only that uh, there is the devil who would destroy the church, not only that we would lose effectiveness for the kingdom of Christ, but also this in the last place, you Christian will be miserable if you do not take heed to your thoughts. Miserable. It says in the book of Romans, and it says, uh, particularly in chapter 8, verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You see, you can never be a happy Christian. You can never feel the the joy of the Christian life if your thoughts are not into subjection unto the gospel of Christ. If you think on this day, yes, I'm going to surrender unto this gospel. I'm going to live out of the truths of the gospel. I'm going to believe the gospel utterly. And then the next, you're you're brought into a place of confusion and, and you're speaking in a way and you're thinking in such a way and acting in such a way that is not consistent with the gospel, then you will be a miserable person. He says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Would you know peace? Would you know the joys of being a Christian? Would you know the joys of fellowship with God and Christ? Here is what is necessary. Your minds must be directed by the Holy Spirit unto the truths of the gospel in order that you would be conformed unto the image of Christ. That is is what our text is saying. And where we would rightly regard that congregation in the context of this verse, I think you, you come to see it a lot more. Here are the Christians in Asia Minor. They're undergoing all these afflictions, persecution and trials and many other things. And he says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that in this verse that's directing itself to the mind, the main verb, indeed the only verb in the Greek, is that word hope. You can translate that, cleave unto in hope, or um, some other, uh, other way of translating, or simply hope. Not as a description of hope in others, but a command. Do it. Hope. That is what is going on there. And that involves our mind congregation. The opposite of a mind that is directed to the hope of the gospel is a mind that sinks into despair. If your thoughts are not governed by Christ, then it is a miserable thing to be a Christian. You're going to be caught between two opinions, caught between the thoughts of the world and the thoughts of Christ, caught between the truths of Scripture and the lies of the devil, going this way and that, being being manipulated and, and being set back time after time, falling into sin because you don't understand the riches of what Christ has done for you. Congregation, some of you have many things that you are going through. I know some of the trials that you are experiencing. Let me tell you this in the name of Christ. Your mind 
must be fixed upon him. If you lose this, if you lose a mind fixed upon Christ, then the least affliction can make you miserable, let alone the worst of what can happen in this life. But if your mind is filled with the light of the gospel and the truths of Jesus Christ, then there is life and peace, then there is hope, then there is assurance, then there is joy unspeakable. The stakes are these. So we've seen that there are dangers of neglecting this, but I'd like to attend now to the exhortation itself, to look at what exactly is going on here. And I trust in the afternoon uh, we'll be able to expand more upon this as it, it works out in our lives. But in the second point, I want to really hammer out what it is that is being exhorted here. In the first place, this exhortation by Christ's apostle concerns the girding up of the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what we must see in this regard, congregation, is that this is a common expression throughout the history of the Bible. Because in that region of the world and across many years, the style of clothing was very different than what we have today. Our clothing, for the most part, especially perhaps for men, it it is more uh, fitted and, and formed to uh, the shape of our of our body. Perhaps it has to do with the climate or the culture, but we don't have the long flowing garments or robes that uh, were common in that part of the world. And so you can imagine, for example, you're a traveler and you're going down. Uh, the road, and all of a sudden a bear lunges at you from the side of the road. Well, you're liable to be eaten alive unless you can flee for your life. And so what that uh, traveler would be wise to do would be to, to tie up his loose clothing, to make it tight around his waist and his feet in order that he is ready for action. And so that is... Essentially, the principle here, gird up the loins of your mind. It's used, for example, um, in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, where the Lord is giving instructions to the people of God as they um, prepare for leaving Egypt after the terrible uh, things that the Lord brought to pass in that land. They're consuming the Passover, and then in Exodus, chapter 12, uh, Verse 10, the Lord says this, And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. So that would be speaking of the Passover lamb. And then verse 11, And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, it would be interesting to speculate whether Peter had exactly this text in mind. You see, there are some themes that are also surfacing in this text that we're considering. There is the need for haste. There is a need to flee from Egypt and to... Um, be united to the people of God in the wilderness. 
Perhaps there's some commonalities with what the Christians in that day were experiencing. There's also the backdrop of judgment. God was bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. He was going to slay the firstborn and, and smite them through the, um, uh, through the Red Sea later on. And indeed, we know the judgment is coming upon this wicked world that applies to Christians both in the days of Peter and to today. So perhaps there's a reference to this. But it's interesting that the reference here is particularly to the loins of your mind. To your mind. It wasn't the first part of the Bible that ever mentioned this. God himself in Job chapter 3 and verse 3 spoke in this way to Job when he was having an argument with Job. He said in Job chapter 38 and verse 3, Gird up now thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. And so there, it's obviously not literally girding up the loins, but be prepared to give an answer, Job. Exercise your thinking here. And so there's, um, there's a figurative use that the apostle is connecting with as well. The Lord Jesus Christ also uses this Analogy, but especially in reference to Christians who are prepared for the end. Prepared for the end of all things at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks in Luke chapter 12, verse 35 to 37. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding that he cometh When he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Obviously, the uh, number of layers of analogy being used here. The central message is this. Christ is returning. You need to be ready for Christ's return. You can't be living in a careless kind of way, but in spiritual things, in terms of being right with God and being prepared to meet the Lord. This is not something you can push off and say, well, this is something not so important. I can focus on other things. No, he says, be ready. Gird up your loins. And it's quite... uh, Quite probable, indeed, I would say almost certain that it's it's this that uh, the apostle is is referencing, connecting this with the teaching of the Lord Christ Himself. So there it is, the mind and the thoughts. If they are just loose, if they are just carefree, if they are wandering this way and that, then they are not disciplined into subjection to. The command that the apostle is giving here, you must be prepared for the war on your mind. You must be prepared for the spiritual battle you must rage. You must be active and disciplined in your earthly pilgrimage. You must be prepared. You must be prepared also for the coming of the Lord Christ himself. Connected with this is the exhortation that follows. Wherefore, gird up the the loins of your mind and be sober. Be sober. Now, we understand what it is to be sober. It's the opposite of being drunk. 
the opposite of being drunk. Someone who is drunk and intoxicated, consuming alcohol, manipulating their mind. Someone who goes to one of these terrible stores and purchases marijuana in order to manipulate their consciousness. What is it that they are willingly doing? They are changing their thoughts in order to distort the picture of reality, in order to avoid facing the truth that is around them. Well, so it is also with those who do not gird up the loins of their mind. They are lacking in sobriety. And it's impossible to be faithful in your calling, Christian, and to live in an intoxicated, distorted way. No, there must be soberness. The same Greek word is used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But there it says, watch thou. So watchfulness, attention, um, attentiveness to reality, sobriety. This is the, the sense. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Exhortations to Timothy, also applicable no matter who you are. The Lord does not want you to live in delusion. The Lord does not want you to focus on things that will disconnect you with the things of eternity. The Lord wants you, rather, to be focused on that which truly matters, your purpose in this life and your destiny in the life to come. And to that end, you see that it all is connected with this last thing. The exhortation is to have your mind fixed upon the person of Christ. Verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This person, this person who suffered and died for us, this one who has risen again, this one who has ascended to the Father, he is returning. He will appear. He will reveal himself in the brightness of lightning in the east with a great heavenly army of angels in his train. He will execute judgment and wrath upon the enemy and he will bring in the new heavens and the new earth bestowed unto his elect people. Watch for him, congregation. Expect him. Think upon these things. Think upon him. It is in this way that we can come to understand the exhortation here. I trust the Lord will bring us back together in this afternoon and we can seek to apply this in some particular context of our lives. But make no mistake, congregation, this is not negotiable. This is true Christianity. Let us never be those who just hear the word and are not conformed unto it.